Well, everyone, welcome to a very special edition of the Spirit of Prophecy podcast. Instead of in my office today, I've got my Ruckmanite whiteboard where I'm going to try to uh, use some illustrations to help you understand some very important truths about the Scripture. And what I'm going to be th- I'm going to be talking about the Nephilim today. We're going to talk about the whole idea of the sons of God. Were they the sons of Seth, or were they angels that intermingled with man? And you say. Well, what does this have to do with prophecy? Well, it doesn't really have anything to do with prophecy as much as it does with the people of God, that subject, which is something that is uh, very uh, important in understanding prophecy. We have this argument about Israel and the church and all that uh, nonsense that we are dealing with all the time. But I just want to use this because one of the reasons people are confused when it comes to the subject of Israel is because they don't understand even what Israel was, the purpose of Israel. You hear people saying all the time, the church did not replace Israel, you know, and Israel is still God's chosen people. And you know the lines that you all hear. And whenever you hear people start saying these things, it shows a major, just fundamental misunderstanding of the Bible as a whole. Unfortunately, especially in the Baptist world, dispensationalism has just infiltrated churches and it has caused so much confusion that preachers are preaching some crazy things and in Baptist King James only churches, it is not uncommon to just hear preachers get up, like you believe that King James Bible, you know you're going to believe that angels intermingled with humans, uh, we're going to inhabit other planets one of these days and just all the weird, you know, Ruckmanite type stuff that people get into. And again, it all comes down to people deciding a doctrine is true, a story is true, a fable is true, and then going to the scriptures to look for a text to back it up. You've got to watch out for that. Don't go looking for a scripture to prove something you've already decided is true. Go to the scriptures and let it tell you what is true. That's what we need to do when we look at the scriptures. And so whenever you listen to someone prove the Nephilim doctrine, it is that you'll see that is exactly what they are doing. They have decided that a story from the book of Enoch that is not in the scriptures, they have decided that that is true, and they've gone to, to the scriptures to see if there's anything in the Bible that backs that up. Well, if you use that method, you might find a few obscure verses that you could say, well, yeah, that kind of lines up with that. But if we take the Bible and we let it tell us a story. Then all of a sudden we will see it's telling us a completely different story than what these people are coming up with. And so I want to show you that. I want to illustrate a few things to you to help you understand that, that in the scriptures, it's telling us a story. Now, many theologians, we have come up with a story that we have decided is true and are always looking for the backup verses. Let's not do that. And that's one of the reasons, too, people are so obsessed even with Israel today. They have made the Bible all about Israel. And that's not true. The Bible is all about Jesus. The Word is what the Word became flesh and dwelt among us is all about Jesus. And I know that sounds like a cliche, and I know no one's going to want to deny what I'm saying there. But when all of a sudden you make the focal point Jesus rather than uh, it then Israel or an ethnic group, things become much more clear. And so let's do that. Okay, let's 
uh, without reading the entire Bible to you, I just want to illustrate a few things to you that are verifiable if you just read the scriptures and, and do your own study. And if you will focus on these things rather than what the dispensationalists are telling you to focus on, you're going to have a much more clear understanding of the Bible. And then when somebody comes along and tries to teach this Nephilim stuff, you're going to laugh them off the stage like they deserve to be laughed off the stage. So here's what I, here's, we all understand that in the Bible we, ha we see the first man, Adam. We all know the story about Adam. God made Adam on the sixth day. God made man. What happened with Adam? Adam sinned. We know from Romans that at, through Adam's sin, he brought sin and he brought death into the world, and that death passed upon all men. 100% of people on this planet, and 100% of people that have ever been born other than Jesus Christ, we all came directly from him, and, and he passed sin and death to all of us. That's why all of us are sinners. You will never have a child that is born sinless because we are all born of Adam and we all need to be born again. We all need to be born of the Spirit, and that comes through Jesus Christ. So all men come from Adam. We need all men to believe on Jesus Christ so they will be born again and be of the Spirit, who in Jesus Christ, he removed that curse. He removed that sin, and he brings eternal life. We all agree with that. But remember, that is the story, because in Genesis 3, when man fell, God promised that a seed of woman would bruise the head of Satan. God promised, God promised salvation through someone who is going to come from Adam. I think we all would agree with that. But then when we continue going on in the book of Genesis, these are not just random stories that will preach whatever we need them to preach that day. No, these are very specific stories that the Bible puts, God put in his word for specific reasons because he's telling us a story. He's showing us how he is going to fulfill that promise of someone who, unlike Adam who brought sin and death into the world, will remove sin and bring eternal life into the world. And so we see, we're, we see the stories of some obstacles, some things that came up. And so we see in the Bible that Adam had a son named Cain. We're all familiar with Cain. And then Adam had another son named Abel. Now, this is not just a random story. This is there for a reason. God has promised that he is going to uh, raise up a seed and, uh, and understand Adam has brought sin and death in the world. Somebody is going to come from him that's going to bring that righteousness into the world. God has always wanted to raise up a people and a nation that are righteous. And God, and back before Christ, God was going to raise up a wanted to raise up a nation and a people that the seed would come from. Because God, God has to fulfill his promise. So God is looking for a people that he can fulfill his promise to. So Cain brings his offering, the fruit of the ground. God was not pleased. Abel brings a blood sacrifice. God had respect and was pleased with Abel's offering. And God chose Abel. That's what we're seeing in the scriptures. God is choosing someone. God chose the one who brought the blood sacrifice, the one who was of faith. And so what happened? Cain, he didn't like that. And so he kills his brother. We all know these stories, but they're there for a very specific reason. But then Cain, got, you know, because he's killed his brother, 
He understands everyone who finds me is going to want to slay me. You know why? Because the death penalty didn't start after the flood. Like dispensationalists will tell you with their dispensation of uh, human government. Okay? No, obviously people wanted to kill him even before that. Okay? Dispensationalism messes everybody up. And so there it is. Cain, he's, he's cursed. God has cursed the ground. For it's not going to bring forth food. And there's a lot of stuff we could speculate on. I'm not going to do that. But you all un understand that later, Adam had another son, Seth. And Eve said, God has appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Seth is where the Messiah is going to come from. Now, I, I hate to speculate because that's the problem that a lot of people are having on the Nephilim side. But again, their speculation is leading towards, you know, is, is based on doctrinal error. My speculation is based on just clear facts in the Bible. But at the same time, does anybody think Adam only had Cain, Abel, and Seth? Those are the only children he ever had. Who are all those people that are going to be wanting to kill Cain when they found him? Do we really think those are all the people? No. The Bible is focusing on a very specific line because it is. It's about the Messiah. There were Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. There were probably quite a few people on the earth during that time. And so, after we see Cain kill Abel in Genesis chapter 4, we will notice that Cain goes on, and, and this, folks, this is not random stuff. Okay? If you believe in the Nephilim doctrine, everything that we're seeing is just kind of just random facts. You know, they're true facts, but just kind of random. But if we're actually paying attention to the story, if we're paying attention to God trying to keep his promise, all of a sudden, every, everything, every word of Genesis is there for a reason, and it's all focusing on one story. So after Cain, he bears a son named Enoch. After Enoch, we have Irad that is born. After Irad, we have Mahujael. After Mahujael, we have Methuzael. Not to be mistaken with Methuselah. After Methuzael, we have Lamech. Okay, now, maybe when you read the story of Lamech, you just think it's a random story. I think it's all connected. I think it's all connected. The Bible's showing us something very specific. But if you read about Lamech, it mentions that he had two wives. That was not right. And, and Lamech had three sons, Jubal and Jabal with Ada, and then Tubal came with Zillah. And then in Genesis 4.23, Lamech said unto his wives Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. He's killed two people. If Cain should be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. Now remember, you know, this, this was a huge deal when Cain killed his brother Abel. We, and it, and we, do, we don't know much about what the world was like during that time. It's, it's very difficult for us to imagine. We're all so used to death. We're so used to violence. But they were living much longer back then. And, uh, and so death probably wasn't as common. But when we get to Lamech, all of a sudden we see a couple more murders that are mentioned. I don't think that's a coincidence. And then he just declares, not God. God told Cain that he, if anybody tried to kill him, they'd be avenged sevenfold. But Lamech just declares this for himself about the seventy and sevenfold. 
This, this was not right. He was in no position to do that. So just remember this, because, again, nothing's in the Bible by accident. So then at the end of chapter 4, it mentions Seth being born, and then it mentions Enos being born. And it was during his day that men began to call on the Lord. And I believe that's referring to people getting saved. I, I believe that's referring to a righteous group of people that, that were popping up during that time. And so when we get to chapter 5, notice it says in chapter Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man in the likeness of God made him male and female created him, them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his own image and called his name Seth. Now remember, it, this is this book of the generations of Adam. This is not showing everyone that descended from Adam. Do we really think that Adam, you know, Adam only had one son other than Cain and Abel? Do we really think Seth only had Enoch because he got sons and daughters? Why is the name of all these people? It's focusing on a line. It's focusing on a line because, again, it's all about Jesus. It's, it's taken us to Jesus. It's taken us to the Messiah. And so after, so Seth begets Enos, and then Enos begets Cainan, and then Cainan begets Mahalalel, and then Mahalalel, he begets Jared, and Jared begets Enoch. Now, again, if your Nephilim doctrine is true, this is just a coincidence, but I believe what we see if we, again, remove the chapter divisions and let the scriptures tell us a story. Here's what we're seeing. We see Adam, and then it goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Lamech, the seventh from Adam. What do we see? We see murder. We see violence increase. We see lawlessness. We see a man who takes two wives. That's what we see with Lamech. When we go over to Seth's line in chapter 5, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, what do we see? We see a man named Enoch who walks with God. We see a man who prophesied. In Jude, it mentions how he prophesied of the Lord coming with ten thousands of the saints to execute judgment on all those that live ungodly. Why did God use Enoch? I'll tell you why. Because during his days, he lived 300 years after he begat Jared. The violence did not just happen overnight. The violence started with Lamech killing these two men. But then over a period of years, probably hundreds of years, that violence, that lawlessness began to increase. And during his day, he started preaching about judgment. This man who walked with God. We see a very big difference between this line where men are calling on the Lord, where we have a man who's walking with God, and this line over here that God has cursed the ground for their sake, a man who's taken multiple wives, who's killed two people. And so that, so right there, chapter four, his line, chapter five, that line, and then chapter six, what do we see? We see the intermingling of these two lines. That's what we end up, we end up seeing. And as a result of these two intermingling with each other, we do not see 
human-angel hybrids. Okay? People are reading that into the text. It says, And it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born of them, that the sons of God, who were the sons of God? Those who called on the Lord? That, that's who. When they saw that they were fair, they took them wives of all which they chose. They start acting like Lamech, taking multiple wives. Taking, and they shouldn't have been taking wives from the heathen either. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days should be 120 years. God said, I'm going to bring judgment in 120 years on you as a people. And so understand, this is why God told Israel, too, when they came out, of, when they went into the promised land, don't intermarry with the heathen. Why? Not because they'll mess up your DNA. No, because they'll turn you away from God. You will commit their abominations. And what do we see Israel do? Committing their abominations when they would intermarry. They would start being like those people. They would start serving their gods. God wanted them serving him. But when they start intermarrying with these people, this is the exact same thing that happened with Israel. The exact same thing. There, there's no doubt about it. And it says there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children unto them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. What do we see going on here? Are we seeing giants being, is it saying that the giants were the result of these, uh, of this inter intermingling? No, the giants are being referred to because it's just stating as a fact, there were giants in the earth in those days. And what do we always see with giants in the scriptures? We always see them being violent, warriors, bullies. When you're a lot bigger than everyone else, it's real easy to just kind of, you know, uh, oppress people. And that's what they did. There's violence. That's what's continue, continuing to be highlighted. Not bad genetics. Violence was a result. And so God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagine of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man in the earth and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the earth. For it repenteth me that I have made man, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And it gives the generations of Noah, talking about having Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it says in verse 12, And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Why? For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. What was that way? What made their flesh corrupt? Bad genetics? Bad DNA? Is that what it was? No, God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth violence, murder, like Lamech, like Cain. Cain was a murderer. Lamech was a murderer. And now, as these people have intermingled with each other, the whole earth is full of murder. But thankfully, Noah, he was perfect in his generations. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and God ends up sparing, man, not just he, or saving his family, and as a result, too, God is able to keep his promise that even though all man has corrupted their way in the earth, God is still going to be able to have somebody come who is going to undo what Adam did and to bring in life and righteousness. That's what we're seeing in this story. And so we know what happens after the flood, of course, though. It's clear that Noah... And his sons descend from Adam. They're still sinful. Noah becomes drunk. He, he's naked. 
Ham comes and looks in his na- on his nakedness. There was Shem and Japheth, thankfully, that they, they covered their father's nakedness. They hid his shame, and they wouldn't look on it like, like, Ham, like Ham did. And so God blessed Shem and Japheth while Ham was cursed. But, um, in that, but then eventually, we see the story of the Tower of Babel. Man all unites, but they unite around something that is wrong. And then eventually, what do we see? We see a man named Abraham come on the scene. Abraham comes on the scene. Now think about this. Abraham shows up in Genesis chapter 11. Abraham was born 2,008 years. You can add it up. 2,008 years after the creation. The first 11 chapters cover over 2,000 years of history. And then all of a sudden, the story slows way down. Why? I'll tell you why. Because Genesis was the first book of Moses. Moses gave Genesis to Deuteronomy to Israel at the end of their time in the wilderness, right before they went into the promised land. And so Moses is giving Israel their history. And so in the first 11 chapters, it's just kind of given a a quick, brief overview of some major historical events that took place leading up to their father, Abraham, whom God chose that he would make a great nation of. And so now we see the focal point in the Bible go completely to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and you all know the story. But again, what's the significance of that? It's not so much that Israel's special, but God got, became very specific when it gets to Abraham on where the seed is going to come from. God is going to bless all the world through somebody who's going to come from Abraham. And so now, that's why Abraham becomes so important. But here's something else, too. And this, will, and this messes with a lot of people's dispensationalism and your dispensations and all that. But understand, Abraham was not the only saved person on the earth. Okay? He, was, he was not the only saved person on the earth. Everyone would agree that a contemporary of Abraham would have been Job. Job was a contemporary with Abraham. Now, interestingly enough, people use Job to teach this Nephilim nonsense. In Job chapter 1, it says, And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And then in chapter 2, we see the same thing. And people just assume that's angels, sons of God presenting themselves before the Lord. Um, Well, what do you think that means? I'll tell you exactly what I think that means. Okay, does anybody remember a very important individual who was on the earth as well with Abraham during that time? A man named Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the king of Salem. We see him in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, Abraham meets him. Uh, after the king of uh, says in verse uh, says the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer and of the kings that were with him in the valley of Shava which is the king's dale and Melchizedek king of Salem brought forth bread and wine and he was the priest of the most high God and he blessed him Melchizedek blessed Abraham why because the less is blessed of the better and said blessed be Abraham of the most high God possessor of heaven and earth and he ble- and blessed be the most high God which hath delivered thine enemies in thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. Abraham gave tithes. 
Where did Abraham get this giving tithes idea? The law hasn't been written yet. Where did, where did this priest come from? The law hasn't been given yet. What's going on? Here's what you are missing because of your dispensationalism that is focused mainly on, on, on Israel. This is what I believe. I believe in Job, okay, this, before, before God gave the priesthood to Israel, before God gave the priesthood to Levites, there was somebody who had neither beginning of days nor end of life named Melchizedek who had it, who operated in Salem, that later became known as Jerusalem, in the land of the Jebusites. He did these things. Most would agree, too. People believe that he was the Lord. He was Jesus Christ, or an Old Testament manifestation of him. But either way, there was a priest of the Most High God, and just like under the law, people, the way they would go and present themselves before the Lord, they would go to the high priest. They would go to the tabernacle, and they would give offerings. That was how they would present themselves. The priest would present themselves before the Lord at the tabernacle. Well, what did they do before the tabernacle? Listen, God never started anything in the middle. Everyone wants to start everything with Israel. No, listen, there were clean and unclean animals at the ark. God, how, did, how did they know what the clean and unclean were? God didn't give that until after Mount Sinai. No, they had it even before that. They had a priesthood before that. They had sacrifice before that. They had sacrifices with Abel. So, so understand that when the sons of God are going to present themselves before the Lord, I think it's safe to say that you had righteous people, you had saved people who were going and presenting themselves before Melchizedek, going and offering up, giving offerings and sacrifices, just exactly what we see them doing later, but in Israel. But remember, this was during, uh, the, you know, Job is before Abraham, and Job I think you could argue was probably more righteous than Abraham was. Abraham made some pretty big mistakes. We don't really see that with Job, but still, it didn't matter. God chose Job to go through suffering, and he taught us some great lessons, but Job, without a doubt, is a saint. We learn great things from him. But God chose Abraham to raise a great nation from, and God can do that. That's what we're seeing in the Scripture. Abraham wasn't the only saved guy walking the earth during that time. But God did choose him to raise up a great nation that would be one that the seed would come from, that all the nations in the earth would be blessed by. God chose Abraham for that. Not Job, he chose Abraham. That's the story that we're seeing in the scriptures. So Job absolutely does not, is not teaching Nephilim. Because we see there were, there were men like Job who were righteous. I would assume Job's friends were probably righteous. And Job's Children were probably righteous, but they had things, they had practices that they did before the law. But understand, after Israel came out of Egypt in Mount Sinai, God gave those things to them. The oracles of God ended up giving, uh, were given to Israel. The priesthood was given to Aaron and the Levites. God did that. God chose that. You could say God replaced the priesthood of Melchizedek temporarily with the priesthood of Aaron, and then eventually God replaced the priesthood of Aaron and went back to the priesthood of Melchizedek through Jesus Christ when the seed came. So those oracles of God, those things of the temple, they were given for a specific time, and so God, but God choosing Abraham 
was not God making a new special race that would be the greatest throughout all history because we see Abraham had a son named Ishmael before he had Isaac. So it wasn't a genetic thing because Ishmael didn't receive the promise or the blessing. He had several sons with Keturah and they didn't receive it. Abraham gave everything that he had to Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. It's still not genetic. Esau doesn't get the blessing. Isaac gave it to Jacob. Jacob, he got it by deceit. He stole it. But either way, Jacob got it. And then Jacob, from him came the 12 tribes of Israel. And, under, and God changed his name to Israel. Israel is an individual. Israel is a person, an individual. He, Israel is, is a man that received the promise from Abraham and Isaac. And Israel commanded his 12 sons. He gave them certain commands they were to follow. He put Judah as a leader. And he was to lead his brethren until Shiloh came. And unto him, Shiloh shall the gathering of the people be. That's what Israel gave to the 12 tribes. And so what we're reading in the scriptures after the story of Genesis is we're seeing Israel continue to corrupt themselves like they did, like they did, but yet God miraculously preserving them. You know why? Because God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. And God promised Abraham in your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. I'm going to, I'm going to give some land to your seed. I've got some promises for your seed. Someone that's going to come from you. And, that, and it, it's not everyone who comes from you, because Ishmael didn't get it. Esau didn't get it. But understand, these 12 tribes became very special because somebody from there is going to receive this inheritance and this blessing. The seed is going to come from there. The, the one that God promised during the days of Adam, when Adam brought in sin and death, God is going to bring that seed that's going to bring in life and righteousness through somebody in these 12 tribes. And we see later it gets narrowed down to men like David. God promised he was going to come through David. And sure enough, we see in the Bible that Jesus Christ came and we have the book of the generations of Adam in Genesis chapter 5. Even though we know it's not giving everyone the descendant from it's focusing on a line. And then in Matthew chapter 1, we have the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it only gives, it's only given one person in each of those lines. Why? Because it was never about a race. It was never about all the descendants. It was about the one that God promised to Adam back in the very beginning, and the entire story of the Bible is a story showing how God kept his promise to Adam, a promise that he gave to Abraham, a promise that he gave to Isaac and Jacob, and to, and to David, of a Messiah that would come, of somebody who's going to come and sit on your throne, David, and he's going, to, he's going to rule the nations. God promised that, and let me tell you something. God is not going to keep his promise to Israel, God kept his promise to Israel. God is not going to keep his promise to Adam.
God kept his promise to Adam. The second Adam, or the last Adam, came, and he brought life, and he brought righteousness into the world, even though this man passed death and sin to every single man, God promised that seed, Jesus Christ, and he came, and he removed that. And that's the story, that's the story of the scriptures. And so whenever you understand, this is the story of the Bible, and you hear people inserting this nonsense into Genesis chapter 6, it's like, what, what, what story are you talking about? God's telling a very specific story here. He's showing how he's, he kept a very specific promise here, and you're just inserting this nonsense about angels and humans mixing with each other. What is that all about? And people will pull out. There's a couple other passages they'll pull out. I don't want to ignore these things. But Jude 1.5 says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. And you say, right there, that's proof right there. The angels that kept not their first estate, that's when they went and intermingled, and all that nonsense. Wait, you, you got all that from Jude. Because that's not what we see in Genesis 6. Think about it too. If you are Israel, during that time when they are just about to go into the promised land, and Moses hands you these five books, and you go and you read them, what is in this passage that would make you think that the sons of God were angels? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. People misuse Job, ignoring what was around during Job's day, Melchizedek. Others say people, they're ignoring all that because they've got a dispensational mindset. But uh, people use 2 Peter 2, 4, For if God spare not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spare not the old world, but save Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them with an overthrow, making them an example unto all them that actually live ungodly. See right there, the angels that sinned in the days of Noah. Hang on, time out. Again, you know what you just did? You went to the scriptures looking for proof of something you already decided is true. What is Jude telling us? What is Peter telling us? Jude, the context of Jude and Peter is they are talking about false prophets and how God is going to deal with them, so don't follow them. And what do they use? They use proofs of past judgment. God punished the angels that sinned, so God's going to punish them. God punished the people during Noah's day. God's going to punish these false prophets. God punished Sodom and Gomorrah. God's going to punish these false prophets. So, again, why do you just read that and then connect the angels that's sinning with what happened in the days of Noah? Why don't you connect it with what happened in the days of Lot? Okay, obviously you can't do that, but again, people do because they're just looking for a proof text. No, this is just giving us three big examples of God's judgments. Now, you say, well, what do you think the angels sinned in? What do you think that sin was? And I'm going to show you something very important that you will almost never see in the theological world. Okay? But again, we're honest here. Okay? We have no political agenda. We're loyal to the scriptures. When I read this passage that talks about the angels that sinned, and uh, people ask me, what do you think that sin was? Here, here's my answer. 
them leaving their habitation. Other than that, I don't know. I don't know. The, the Bible doesn't share that story with us. Just like it doesn't tell us the story about Satan fighting with Mike Angel, uh, Michael the Archangel over the body of Moses. I believe it happened because Jude referred to it, but the scriptures doesn't tell, you know, the Old Testament doesn't tell us about that story, so I don't get to make stuff up about it. I believe it happened. I believe there are some angels that sinned, but I don't know what they did. So you can't use Jude and 2 Peter because it says nothing about them intermarrying. Now you can assume that, assuming you were correct about that, but again, you're not, you don't get proof from that in Genesis, and people will literally use these passages as proof. They are not proof. And you say, well, what else do you think it could be? Well, you know, here, here's a question I have for you. How many angels sinned? Okay. Now, I, I, I could be wrong. It's been years since I've read it. In the book of Enoch, it tells us how many angels there were. There were several. I think there was like, it seems like there was like around 20 or something. It wasn't a huge number, but you know, there, there were several. But here, here's a question I have. Revelation 9.13 says, And the sixth angel sounded, I heard a voice from the four horns under the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels, which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay a third part of men. So I think there were four angels that sinned. I don't know. I'm just guessing. I'm guessing because he talks in Jude about those who left their habitation, they're reserved in everlasting change under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. I think that could be a reference to the four angels that are bound in the great river Euphrates. What do you think those guys did? What do you think those four angels bound in the great river Euphrates did? I don't know. Okay, I'm guessing they left their habitation. What, what does that mean? What does that entail? When did that happen? I don't know. That's what you'll never hear in the theological world. But you know what? The Nephilim people, I'll tell you exactly what happened. They went and intermingled with humans, even though in the beginning of Genesis when it's showing creation, it talks about everything bringing forth after its kind, after its kind. But then somehow angels are able to bring forth something not after their kind. We don't see that anywhere in nature, but at the same time, people will insert that because it fits Greek mythology. It's entertaining. Okay? It's entertaining. And when you haven't got any Holy Ghost unction on your preaching, and you've got a church full of goats who want to be entertained that have been watching Lord of the Rings all week, they're going to love hearing you talk about that kind of stuff. But let me tell you, it's not what we see in the scriptures, and it distracts from the story that we're seeing in Genesis, right in the very beginning in Genesis, right when we see the fall of man, we immediately see God making a promise that he is going to bring up someone that's going to undo everything that Adam did. And the New Testament is showing God fulfill his promises to Israel. And the dispensations are trying to tell us, no, God didn't fulfill his promises. No, God fulfilled his promise to Israel. God fulfilled the promises that he made to Seth and to Enos and these men and to Enoch and to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And the Bible tells us that we are going to sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. But the children of the kingdom are going to be cast in outer darkness. Why? Because there's a resurrection coming. So even if you you know, claim that there is something that is still to come, okay, for Israel, well, understand there's a resurrection that's coming at the return of Christ, and God will do all those things during that time. There is no further promise to an ethnicity. God fulfilled that promise 
and claiming some kind of special place for an ethnicity today when God fulfilled the promises that he made to that ethnicity and brought in Jesus. Okay, because this is what it's all about right here, folks. That's what the Bible is all about, Jesus. It's all leading to Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. He's what it's all about, and, and he, he came. And so to claim that there is some special group from these people that are separated from him. Everybody's always wanting to separate the church and Israel and all that nonsense. Okay, But understand, if, if you're doing that, that's the same as saying that we still have, there, or that's be like making a claim, we still need a temple, that we still need blood sacrifices, that we still need a Levitical priesthood. No, all of those things that God gave to Israel, to those 12 tribes, they served their purpose. They were temporary. They were till the time of Reformation. Jacob gave those things to the 12 tribes until Shiloh came, and they were supposed to follow Shiloh. They were supposed to follow Jesus Christ. Moses, who gave them the law that they were supposed to follow, told them, when a prophet from among your own brethren, like unto me, when he comes, unto him shall ye hearken. And anyone who doesn't listen to him, he's going to be cut off from the people. That's what Moses said. And so understand, the promises to Israel are fulfilled. And I think it's important we address this foolish Nephilim doctrine because it is a very carnal doctrine that appeals to people's flesh and their love for all things sci-fi, mysterious, and weird. But it takes away and it, it distracts from the focal point of the scripture and that and that's showing throughout the history of mankind that God was always going to keep that promise he made to Adam through Jesus Christ. And we have got to stop telling people God's going to keep his promise to Israel when God kept his promise to Israel. And now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. That is what we need to be thundering to Israel. That's what we've got to be thundering to the Jews because one of these days he's going to come back and the Bible says when he comes with clouds and every eye sees him, it says all the tribes of the earth are going to wail because of him. And that includes, that includes Israel, folks. You act, they act like, nope, they're just all going to get saved then. Wrong. Wrong. That is from a horrible interpretation of Romans 11 that I don't have time to go into. So the promises are fulfilled. And so don't fall for this Nephilim doctrine. You say, oh, it's, not a, it's not a big deal. It's a big deal. It's leading to all these other errors. And... Uh, I think we, uh, we, we proved our point. And I'm sure there's probably some other weird proof texts that people like to use. Uh, if I need to do a follow-up video addressing some of these things, uh, I, I'd be glad to. I've made many videos in the past. This is the first time I've dealt with this on this channel. I just released an old video on Saturday about it. But uh, this, is, this, is, this is important stuff. And if you go back and listen to that video uh, from Saturday, I mean, there's some pretty crazy heresy that is mentioned in there uh, when he talks about how there weren't any sons of God, you know, before Christ and all that. That's, that's absolutely ridiculous, blasphemous. It kind of shows, too, an attitude that they, uh, there was a different salvation before the cross. And we don't have time to go into all the, you know, potential heresies you can go into from this doctrine. But I think I illustrated very clearly what the Bible is saying. Let the Bible tell its story. 
don't let a preacher come along and try to tell you some story he got from another book somewhere, from the book of Enoch, and use vague scriptures to try to show, hey, the Bible backs that up. That's ridiculous, that is wrong, and it is a horrible misuse of the scripture, and I am 100% against it. So I appreciate everybody watching this special edition uh, of the Spirit of Prophecy. Make sure you like and share this, and God bless you. We will see you all next time.